Well, it says our New Testament reading, but our Old Testament reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat much, eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and everyone comes, so they depart, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This is what I have observed to be good that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot, and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we've spent a lot of time in this book of Ecclesiastes, and it's dark, it's foreboding, it's challenging, and maybe we're sitting here this morning uh, a little tired. Um, We see the world already as Ecclesiastes tells us it is. We're beaten down in our jobs. Our relationships are falling apart. Maybe our bodies are failing us. We don't need to be reminded that we live in a broken and sad world. But yet, Lord, we know because you have placed this book here that we do. And that we need to not only be cognizant of the fact that things are falling apart in our world, but we need to know how to interpret them. And we need to know to, what to do with that, with that fact. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we continue this journey, that we would not be content just to observe, just to make note of what is going on in our world, but that we would look to you to solve it, to find a way out, to find, in fact, salvation. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This winter, as I alluded to in my prayer, we've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, and almost at every turn, it confronts us with some of the most distressing, uncomfortable themes and conclusions in all of Scripture. The refrain, page after page, the conclusion is, this also is vanity, pleasure, work, wealth, the passing of time, our ambition, even our worship. There's a way that we go about life. There's a way that we have inhabited and cultivated the most basic things of life that is deadly, that we have an appetite for destruction. 
Ecclesiastes opens our eyes to the abyss of life, and it propels us to experience life as it is, as a result of this deep relational breakdown between us and God. And it carves out room for God to restore that break, for us to hear His searching and welcoming voice, not in a mountaintop experience or escape, but here in the world as it is. We have to find God here because that's where He chooses to show up. That's where He chooses to reveal His character and His mission towards our world. He chooses to show up in the dark places of a broken world, in the lives of suffering people, in the questions of doubt. That's where He chooses to live. And if we're unwilling to seek Him there, then we're not going to find Him, at least not fully. And that's why, strangely, our appetites for destruction can actually be pathways to God and to restoration. Now, last week, if you were here with us, we looked at, with Kohelet, who is the Hebrew name for teacher or preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he helped us look at the inadequacy inadequacy of work to provide ultimate meaning and stability that we all toil in a system that doesn't reward people fairly, that allows a great deal of injustice to exist, and that this injustice often falls upon the backs of those with the least amount of resources in order to deal with it. And he says, don't be surprised when you see injustice in the workplace, when you see injustice institutionalized in our world. Now this week, what we're looking at is we're looking at the corruption of institutions, but, but, but deeper than that, we're looking at how this corruption is built on a foundation of a deeper, of a, of a gut level, of a heartscape corruption, the corruption of our lives, of our loves, and the corruption of our appetites. Now, this section runs from where we began in chapter 5, verse 10, all the way through chapter 6, but I only read a part of it because... I was being nice to you guys. Now, it begins with something almost too obvious. Verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. If you love money, you will never have enough. And we've seen this depicted in stories throughout the ages, Midas, Silas Marner, A Christmas Carol, And we believe these stories. They appeal to us as long as they're in reference to someone else. We believe them in theory, but not in practice in our daily lives. So it's something obvious, but it's not something that we necessarily live out and believe at a heart level, at a gut level. And then verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. Increased wealth only brings more people alongside you who want a piece of your wealth who want a slice of the pie. I watched a story on ESPN's 30 for 30 a few weeks ago, and it's uh, documenting uh, professional athletes in general, but primarily in this episode, NFL stars who had lost their fortunes, mostly within a few years of retirement. They accumulate wealth only to accumulate consumers of that wealth. And one said, I didn't know how many friends I had until I got rich. 
Increased wealth also increases hangers-on, people who want a piece of what you have. Then verse 6-2, which I didn't read, God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. They have what they've desired. They have everything that they've desired, but they can't settle. They can't rest. Acquiring these things and having them doesn't bring satisfaction because they've already begun thinking about what's next, what else, what can I add to what I already have. And then if we jump ahead to verse 6-7, everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. That our desires are insatiable that we're in this desperate pursuit to fill a bottomless pit. But it takes more and more and more. It sounds like addiction, doesn't it? We can't settle our eyes on the good that's in front of us, but we always are looking through what's in front of us to what's next, to what we could have. We've all experienced being in a conversation, right, with someone who can't settle They can't focus upon you. Their eyes are darting around. They're wondering, even though they're ostensibly talking to you, they're wondering, well, what about that conversation? What about what's going on over there? How could I gain something from this conversation? And they're having this conversation in their head about how soon they can get out of conversation with you to get on to something that actually matters. They can't settle. They can't focus upon conversation with you. But what about the opposite? And it's so rare that it's compelling. You leave feeling this from this conversation, this person really understands me. This person gets me. Someone who seems intently focused on you and not the other people in the room. There's an ease about this person. Their life, there's a freedom that allows them to settle into a real give-and-take conversation with the person who's actually in front of them without their eyes wandering about the room for someone that's more interested, interesting or more connected, they possess a freedom that allows them to be fully present in that moment. This text that we're looking at is about persons who are blessed with material possessions, who have power, who have wealth, and yet they can't settle. They can't be present in the moment. They can't be conscious to what they already have. They're distracted. They're wanting something more or someone more, and they're not able to be fully present in their lives or in the lives of those closest to them. In 2005, David Foster Wallace gave what has become a somewhat famous commencement speech at Kenyon College, and I've shared part of it with you before because it's remarkable, and it taps in to much of the same kind of problems that Kohelet is observing in the world. And he says basically that there's no such thing as an atheist because everyone is worshiping something. Whether it's institutional religion or not, everyone has their heart captured by something and they're driving towards accumulating and acquiring that thing. And that these objects actually end up eating us alive. And he says if it's money, just as Kohelet says, you never have enough. You're always wanting more. You're always wanting to pad the pile. 
If it's your body, if it's your beauty, you're always wondering if you're beautiful enough. How do you stack up against the person next to you? And you begin to focus upon your imperfections. You can't settle. You can't be grateful for the body, the beauty that you do have because you're always wanting something else. You're always finding someone in the room who is more attractive than you. If it's intellect, then you can't stop thinking about people that are smarter than you, and it's distracting and discouraging. You can never focus, and you come to despise other people if they are smarter than you. If you worship power, you come to despise weakness, especially in yourself, and you can't rest in the power and the strength that you do have, but instead you come to rest in shame and self-loathing. And this is the kind of worship that David Foster Wallace says, eats you alive. It's the kind of worship that reminds you of what you are not, what you don't have, what you haven't done, who you are not, who you don't have. It's always in the negative. It's always a vacuum. There's always something else that you don't have, that you don't possess, and it drives you crazy. It eats you alive. And what he says, and this is very perceptive, is that the world won't discourage you from that sort of worship. Far from it. The world says, go, chase after those loves. This is the sort of worship that fuels our economy and the systems of injustice that exist. And he says, and I quote here, the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that has yielded extraordinary wealth, comfort, and personal freedom. Lay that on top of what we've been looking at in Ecclesiastes. Don't be surprised by the injustice, the oppression in the world, because that's how the world works. That's how the world hums along. But we're invited to ask, what about you? What about your heart? What about your loves? What makes you hum along? If you were to peel back the layers of your own heart and your own desires, what would, you, what would they look like? What would they be pointed to? What are you aiming your life toward that you hope will bring you life that maybe, if you look deep enough, it's eating you alive? David Foster Wallace, he doesn't just diagnose, but he says there's a solution, or at least a partial one. He says there's a freedom, the kind that is most precious. You will not hear much, it much talked about in the great outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention, awareness, discipline, and effort, and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad little unsexy ways every day. That is freedom, he tells these graduates. The freedom to be present in your life. The freedom to be fully aware and appreciative of those around you rather than using them for your own personal gain. To be present in a relationship is the one who is not sucking life out of the relationship, but the one who is life-giving. To be the one in an an institution that breaks the cycle of taking and getting and sitting over others 
and being the one who empowers, who loves, who serves, who lifts up from the bottom. And what are you giving up? In making that choice, what are you giving up? Well, you're giving up restlessness. You're giving up unconsciousness. You're giving up that constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. And that's exactly what we have lost. And that's where we have to depart from David Foster Wallace. At least we need to add on. We need to move beyond. Because we're on a cosmic quest. And Kohelet is on a cosmic quest. He's telling us that we have these appetites for which nothing in this world will adequately satisfy. In 6.2, we read, Some people have wealth and possessions and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, yet they don't have the ability to enjoy them. They have everything and they want more. But he says something different in 519. It's the same sort of flow, but it's different, a different result. Moreover, in verse 19, when God gives someone wealth and possession, possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. Same wealth, same possessions, same situation in life, very different perspective, very different level of contentment. You see, these people have the ability to enjoy the things they have, same wealth and possession, but now they can settle. Now they can be content. They can be present in the lives that they have. You see, our loves, our desires become appetites for destruction when we disconnect them from their true object from their meant object, but appetites for gladness when we attach them to God. When we receive from God as a gift that very thing to which they point. In verse 20, it says, These people that had wealth and possessions and were given the ability to enjoy them, they became people who seldom reflect on the days of their life. In Kohelet's language, that means they seldom reflected upon the despair all around them, the meaningless all around them. They seldomly reflected upon that. Why? Because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. God has occupied them with gladness of heart, and so now the world around them is not despairing, though full of despair. The world is not meaningless, though full of evidence of meaninglessness. The world has meaning in spite of its brokenness and in spite of its sadness. And that when you gain something from the world, wealth, possessions, honor, admiration, you can actually enjoy it because your heart is at its foundation full of gladness. We can have all the gifts that the world has to offer, and without the gift of contentment, we'll never enjoy them. We'll be like that incredibly sad picture in verse 11. And what benefit, that is, all of these things, are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? What benefit of having all of these things except that you could walk around your house and just gaze at the things that you own? What profit is that? The only way to a contented life and to the kind of rest that spills over into other areas of life 
is to have a heart that desires, that runs for gladness, that only comes from God. Now, how do we get that? Finally, let me wrap up here. Well, Kohelet tells us it's a gift. And how do you get any gift? You receive it. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't work yourself up to say, I'm now going to be content. I'm now going to enjoy the things I have, and I'm not going to think about what's out there beyond it. You can't do that. You have to receive something. You have to be given something. And each and every week, we've been seeking to place Ecclesiastes in this larger story of the Bible, that it's not an independent book, but it fits within the history of God's work. And we see Ecclesiastes building in his readers, in its readers, an appetite for something new, for something that's not from under the sun, something outside the system that comes in. Verse 8, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase of the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits from the fields. Those of rank, those of power, use that power to further their own interests and to gain rank, to gain status, to serve themselves, to feed their loves, to feed their appetites. And that's why there's corruption, there's oppression, there's greed in every system and every institution that you look around in, even in the church. And the king himself benefits from the toil of those below him. You see, under the sun, the higher-ups, those in power, the kings of this world, serve themselves. And it's in that understanding that Ecclesiastes prepares us to receive something from beyond the Son. Because from beyond the Son, Jesus comes as the ultimate higher-up, the ultimate king. And how does he hold and how does he use power? When officials, those in power, those of rank in our world pursue their loves, people get stepped on. People get crushed. When Jesus pursues his loves, people are nourished and strengthened and rescued. And his power spills over into the lives of others because he gives up his power. He doesn't control it and maintain it. He doesn't seek rank. He doesn't seek to be over you, but he gives up his status. He gives up his rank. He lets his power flow because you see what those in corrupt institutions love is themselves, but what Jesus loves is you. What he loves is you. And his greatest appetite, his greatest desire is to draw you into relationship with him so that as we come to him, as we experience his power for us, the gift of an identity in relation to him, the gift of rest, the gift of contentment, then we're now free to become a conduit of that power, of that love, of that strength to other people. And until you see that, you'll approach your appetites as a way of getting and keeping and maintaining an identity for yourself, of taking care of yourself, and you'll never get enough. It'll always be just beyond your grasp. But Jesus says, alternatively, receive my gift. Receive my grace. Receive from Him the gladness of heart that you're truly longing for. 
The contentment that comes from knowing up or down, rich or poor, there is a love at the center of the universe that will move heaven and earth to have you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we may not even realize the lengths to which you have gone to win us, to have us, to rescue us, that those links are great indeed. And I pray that we would come more and more to recognize that, to sit in that, to understand what it says about us, that we are fallen and broken beyond repair, but that you stepped in with your great mercy and love to build us up again, to save us, to rescue us, even from ourselves. And Father, I pray that we would find our loves, our appetites, our desires being crafted to to better fit the good things, to better receive the good things that you want to give us. Lord, I pray that you would do that as we confess our faith and as we come to our t- come to this table to eat with each other and to eat with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.